Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Um, I used to live in Sheffield, England, which is a northern town in, in England. It's the best. Um, and when I lived there, my church did this citywide survey with random folks throughout the city. It's bigger than Madison. And they asked one question. Here was the question we asked on our survey. If you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what would you ask him? And we found that people were very interested in engaging that question because people have tons of questions they really want to ask God. <laughs> um, it's like how we have that question we've always wanted to ask our favorite athlete or artist or novelist or whatever. If you had the chance, how much more so with God? And we got all kinds of questions back from the survey. Um, but there were some definite common themes, as you can imagine. And so after we got all these responses back, we held this event where we answered like the top five questions that people asked from the Bible. Uh, and we invited people who we had surveyed, and it was really awesome. And maybe we should do that sometime. It was super fun. Um, we're getting to the end of this series uh, that's primarily out of Matthew chapter 22, our gotcha sermon series, where in the last week of Jesus' life, all the cultural and political and religious leaders are chucking all these gotcha questions at Jesus. And one of the reasons this portion of Scripture is so fascinating, and for me, uh, I find it so relatable, is because a lot of the questions that people ask are the ones that we would want to ask. So, so far we've looked at questions about politics, the afterlife, what's most important in life, which is a pretty big question we talked about last week, who has the ultimate authority in life? So it's this amazing chapter. It's like a Q&A with Jesus. Like who wouldn't love to be at a Q&A with the Son of God, right? But then something happens in this passage, the one that we read today. At the end, he flips the press conference and he asks a question back. And he only asks one question in this entire episode. And it's the one we read this morning. Um, we don't see this often. This would be like a, uh, like LeBron James at a post-game conference being asked tons of questions, and then everybody running out of questions for LeBron James, him silencing people with his answers, and then in the silence, he looks at all the journalists and says, now I have a question for you. Or think of a Senate hearing where somebody's being grilled by the panel of like 25 senators, and the person's questions or answers are so good, nobody has anything to ask anymore. And then with all the cameras running, the person behind all the mic goes, okay, I have a question for all of you now, and then flips it. The questioner becomes the questioned. And this makes me want to take a survey in Madison and ask people, if God had a chance to ask you one question, what do you think he would ask? And I actually think that's a more fascinating answer. If this was a small group, or if we could pause right now and just take some thoughts, I would love to hear people's gut reaction. If the Son of God had time with you and had the chance to ask you one question, what would he ask you? We'll see in our passage this morning uh, what Jesus chose to ask in the silence when nobody else had anything, they, they couldn't say anything else, and he said, I have one question for you guys. Um, it, it's short, it's obscure. Honestly, at first glance, it seems extremely irrelevant and like bogus. Like, what is this dude talking about? But I think we'll see that it is the question. 
Um, it's the one that he would ask us, and it is the most important question. So if you're at home, grab your Bible. Um, if you're at home and you don't have a Bible, I've said this before, please email me. I will buy you one. I will drop it off in a socially distanced way on your doorstep. Um, for those of you here, you can open up your Bible or turn to Matthew 22 in your order of service. All right, this is the end of the chapter. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Long pause, silence, crickets, uneasy shuffling of seats and robes and whatever else people wore back then, sandals. Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus' one question focuses on the identity of the Christ. It's his one question. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. If you're new to the Bible, I always thought that growing up. So it's not like Jesus Christ who was born of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, because that's what I always thought it was. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. And that's what Jesus wants to ask. He wants to ask what these guys think about the Messiah. If you're new to the Bible, the Messiah is the person that the Hebrew scriptures prophesied would one day come and deliver the Jewish people. Um, if you need more help, it's like the one prophecy in the Matrix or the same thing in the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Harry Potter. Even as I watched this past week with my kids, the special in the Lego movie. It all stems from this messianic concept coming out of the Bible. Um, this person would come and defeat evil and restore peace. And so the Messiah represented for these people in its most condensed espresso, espresso shot form, hope. It was all about hope. Sure, the Jews were enslaved by the Romans. Sure, they had been in exile for years and years and years and scattered across the world. Sure, there was injustice and poverty and evil that seemed like in their lifetime would go unanswered. But they had hope because they read the scriptures and they believed that the Messiah was coming. This was the center of their hope. And that's what Jesus chooses to ask them about. Jesus says, did you notice his first thing is, I want to know what you guys think about the Christ. It's really fascinating. He's like, okay, I want to ask you a question. I actually want to prod into your understanding of the Messiah if I can for a second. And then he asks, whose son is he? Um, as Jews, they knew the answer to that question. The Christ is the son of David. And that was true. The Messiah, the Christ, would come from the Davidic line of kings, as the Old Testament prophesies. Okay, Jesus says. Jesus assumes they would get that answer right. He assumed that they knew that. And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the whole, the Lord said to my Lord business. Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament, more than anything else. And more than that, verse 1, what Jesus quotes, is the most quoted verse 
of that chapter. Not only is it the most quoted in all of the New Testament to Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament, it's the most quoted verse and chapter in all the earliest centuries of the early church from the church fathers. So however obscure and weird this sentence might be, uh, and I grant you it comes across that way at first, when we read it, were you like, whoa, this is really intense and bizarre when we all said the psalm together? However obscure it is to us, it's really, really, really important to Jesus and to the writers of the New Testament and to the church. Again, that verse says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. That's the most quoted, alluded to verse in the New Testament. So let's try to unpack it. A few things get lost in translation there. There's two lords in that first phrase, which Jesus is focusing on. The first lord there in that verse is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Um, That's the Hebrew that's there. But out of respect in Jewish tradition, we don't write out the name of God. And what gets replaced in your Bible is probably Lord in all caps. We actually, this was lost in translation in the copy and paste into the bulletin. But if you look in your Bible, you'll you'll see that that first Lord of a Psalm 110 is all caps Lord, and that's the covenant name for God. It's just Lord out of respect. The second Lord, Jesus points out, is referring to the Messiah, David's son. So to paraphrase uh, this verse, King David is saying, God, covenant God of Israel, said to my Lord and Master, the Messiah, sit at my right hand and rule equally alongside of me over everything kind of what he's saying. And Jesus' one big mysterious question is, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Um, dads don't normally call their kids Lord and Master, okay? If you heard me talking to one of my boys and I was referring them in a superior deferential manner like my Lord and Master, you would want to know what's happening here. This is a unique situation. What is going on? And that's exactly the question that Jesus is asking. What's going on here? How can he be David's son and David's Lord? Okay, why is this the one question that Jesus chooses to ask back? He's got one chance with these guys, and he pulls up this verse, and he asks this crazy question. Before you go anywhere else with this, you just have to ponder that. Some of you are like, I'm definitely lost. Like, there's too many lords happening. Like, this is all confusing. Um, It's all kind of weird, and I'm with you. This is part of what it means to wrestle with what Jesus is asking. The key, the key is that Jesus is putting his finger on their understanding of the Christ. By asking them this question, Jesus is shining a spotlight on their hope, and he's showing them that they haven't really thought it through, that their hope is underdeveloped. It's a malnourished hope. When my wife Marissa was in college, she told me I could tell this story. She double-dipped with churches for a while. She went to one service from one church in the morning and went to another college ministry in the evening. And one time she was hanging out with one of her friends, and he was asking her about this, and in a very meaningful, friendly way, said back, so explain to me why you go to two churches but commit to neither. Just kind of let it hang there for a second. And uh, as a good question can do, it forced her to reckon with her relationship with these churches. She probably gave a good answer in defense at the time, 
but then like thought about that on the way home and then was brushing her teeth and thought about it a little more and got frustrated, like how dare he ask me that? And then like woke up and thought about it a little bit more. But you can guess that it eventually led to her making some changes uh, in her deep commitment to a community and to a church and the way that she related and thought about the local church. That's what a good question can do, right? That is what Jesus' question is doing here in this passage for these guys' hopes, for their longings. He's getting them to realize that there's something about the Christ, about the Messiah, that they have not previously considered. It's amazing. Their hope was political. We, we can tell from the Gospels up to this point, if you've tracked this sermon series. It's religious on a human level. Their hope was confined to their boxes, their party's boxes, their denomination's boxes, whatever it is. But Jesus is blowing all of that up here. He exposes, like we said, that theirs is an undeveloped, underdeveloped, malnourished hope. And then his question leads them to wonder, to consider a mystery, that the Christ would be David's son, yes, but maybe, just maybe, more. Maybe the hope of which the scriptures speak, Jesus is beginning them to think about, was deeper and more beautiful and more transcendent than anything they'd ever experienced before. Maybe they're realizing they might have never fully been presented with hope in all its fullness or God in all of his transcendence and earthiness, like whatever's happening in this passage. Maybe God was closer, more involved in their lives than they ever would have previously thought. And all of that would have led them to consider the person who is standing in front of them as the crickets are whatever crickets do. You guys know what I'm trying to talk about. Um, Jesus came in days before this happened, like three days prior, he came into Jerusalem and the title that people called him as he was coming in on Palm Sunday was Hosanna to who? The son of David. So these guys are putting a lot of things together in their mind as they're pondering this in silence. Can you imagine what they started to think? Like, who is this guy? What is he saying right now by asking us this question? Now, what do they say back? Nothing. No one has an answer to Jesus' question. And in fact, don't you love how it says nobody asked him any more questions? This whole thing is set up on people asking Jesus hard questions. And after this, it's like, you want to go next? Like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, you know, like, <laughs> nobody's raising their hand anymore to take a crack at him. And you know what I love? Jesus doesn't answer his question. He allows the silence of their uncertainty to be deafeningly loud. He just leaves it there. He allows them to ponder how the Christ could be David's son and David's Lord. He allows them to consider that there are parts of their hope that are underdeveloped. They wanted to chat with Jesus about politics, about culture wars, the ones of their time. Jesus wanted them to reckon with the identity of the Christ. It's fascinating. Okay, for us, I think so much we could say about this, but for us, I think this question has a twofold significance. The first is theological, the second is personal. Um, so this is massive implications on a 
faith, theology level, massive implications on a personal level. To begin theologically, this question gets at the mystery of our faith, which is the identity and the two natures of Jesus Christ. It's all here. Um, Jesus' riddle, he wouldn't answer it then, but he would allow his life to answer the question. And so we see in Matthew's gospel that eventually, a couple chapters later, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, the Christ? And Jesus says, yes, basically, confirms it. I am David's son. I am the Christ. And then the other answer to his riddle, the other side, is answered by the Roman centurion as Jesus is dying on the cross, who says, truly, this is the Son of God. And so Jesus' question is answered throughout the rest of the gospel when people say this is both the Son of David and the Son of God. Then after the resurrection, Jesus opens up the minds of his disciples to understand this idea. And this becomes one of the great themes in the New Testament. So St. Paul, the writer to the Hebrews and others in all the books of the New Testament, spend massive amounts of time unpacking this idea and understanding it. Oh my gosh, Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and here's why he had to be that. Here's why it's so beautiful. Here's how the gospel depends on the fact that he's fully like one of us, but fully like God. You read any of these books, and it's unraveling this mystery that Jesus opens up with his question at the end of Matthew 22. It's amazing. And then, in the first few centuries of the church, one of the church's great tasks was giving language to this. Um, you know, some people were like, Jesus wasn't fully man, but he was fully God. And people were like, no, that's not right. And other people were like, no, Jesus was a dude, but he wasn't God. And people were like, no, that's not right. And so in the first centuries of the church, people worked super hard, our church mothers and fathers, to articulate this. And we have this work passed down to us in the creeds. So all that to say, Jesus is, doesn't answer his question here, but he, through the Holy Spirit, leads his people in the New Testament and the church to unravel this and behold this beautiful mystery. It's amazing. It's all an answer to Jesus' question. And isn't it amazing how it's all here in Psalm 110, verse 1? If you go back and look at it again, his humanity, his divinity, his priestly role is in that psalm. His kingly rule is right there. So the theological significance of this is bottomless. It's bottomless. But don't think for a second that this is just for Bible nerds and philosophers. Amen? It has bottomless personal significance, whether you have ever read the Bible in your life or not. And here's why. In this season of politics and pandemics and social justice, we have a lot of questions that we want to ask Jesus. And he does engage them, which I love. He cares about those questions. But when he gets a chance... When Jesus gets the mic, he doesn't ask culture war questions back. He goes deeper. We come to him with dorm room questions, right? The classic 18-year-old, I'm a freshman in college and I'm ready to duke it out. Hey, what about evolution, Jesus? Hey, why can't I sleep with whoever I want? Hey, what do you have to say to this person on TikTok who's super annoying me and I wanna silence them with my own TikTok? I'm not on TikTok, by the way. I wouldn't even know how to use it. But we want to ask those questions, right? Dorm room, dorm room questions, culture questions. But when Jesus gets the mic, he wants to talk to you about what you think about the son of David. This is always the Bible's main question. 
Who do you say that I am? Jesus says. Who do you think the who do you think Jesus of Nazareth is? You can get every other political and theological question right, but if you miss that one, it's all for naught. Amen? Because he's our only hope. Son of God, son of man. David's Lord, yet David's son. If your hope is placed anywhere else, politically, theologically, culturally, it is an underdeveloped, malnourished hope. A hope that is human isn't enough. This is important that we think about this right now, as it is always. A hope that is all human is not enough. No president, no pastor, no cultural leader, no government can fix all the world's problems or all your problems. And we got a lot. <laughs> we have a lot of problems. <laughs> a hope that is all heaven is not enough. The answer to our personal brokenness is not escapism, it's not meditation, it's not nirvana, it's not theological perfection in your mind. The Christian version of that kind of falsehood, an all heaven hope, is like the one that leads to clouds and harps and a, just an escapism. We need a person, y'all, who understands us, amen? We need a person who has cried hot tears like us, who laughs like us, who bleeds like us, who has died like us to show us a way forward as humans. And we need a God who is above us and beyond us to break into our experience, who actually does have the authority to defeat sin and death, our great enemies, and to forgive us and heal us. That takes God. Nobody else can do that. But you need both, right? The only place that happens is in David's son and David's Lord, son of God, son of man. If you're listening to this and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, um, this is the question that I think Jesus wants to ask you. Who's Jesus? What do you think, who do you think he is? Uh, if you're a Christian, you've been at church for a long time, this has been convicting for me this week. I think this is Jesus' question for you. Hey, who do you think I am? I think there are ways that Jesus could ask us this question in his own personal way through the Holy Spirit that would get us to realize places where our hope has veered from the fullness of David's son and David's Lord. He knows you have questions about a lot of things, and he cares about those. Jesus is so dignifying of our questions. That's one of the reasons we love the God of the Bible is he entertains those and he listens. But eventually, it all comes back to this one. And when he reveals that, when we allow him to kind of open up our eyes to the identity and the reality of who Jesus is, man, then our hope sinks into the soil and sprouts flowers, becomes full. It's something that matters this afternoon and for all eternity. Praise God. So we are a community on this journey constantly for the revealing and the unraveling of who Jesus is in our life. It's personal. It's also eternal. If you're a Christian, that's constantly what this is coming back to. And I love that, you know, we've been kind of in an expositional series through Matthew 22, but it has been topical in the sense that we've talked about, like, politics and other things that are happening right now. 
But Jesus brings it all back to who do you think I am? And are you face to face with me, a person? Not are we on the right side? Are we answering all these questions right or wrong? Hallelujah. So as we worship, as we are doing life as a community, as we come to the table in a second, and if you're watching, either as you're joining us in praying the prayers of spiritual communion or you come and receive Eucharist in a really safe way in your car and curbside pickup, it's all about coming to confront the person of Jesus. Amen? That's what we need, y'all, in this time. And Jesus, that's why he came, is so that he can be in your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.